Welcome back to another episode of Money Beyond Borders, where we demystify personal finance for you and try to give you the education and the transparency you need to make informed decisions about your life financially. Today, we're going to discuss salary. And now that we've equipped the listeners with uh, time management and risk management skills and, and insights, now's the time to apply those skills and use them for good and for good for yourself. And specifically the topic we'd like to discuss, which is fairly pressing and timely given the state of the economy is salary. And what does that mean for you and your future goals uh, and ambitions um, that you have? And I think as all great, uh, up until now, we've spoken in abstract terms and this will be a, the first episode where we get a little bit more into the meat and potatoes, a little, a little more granular. And so we're going to start using terms, and we'd like to define them before we use them. And so some of these terms that are very pertinent to the discussion, well, first off is going to be your W-2. And that W-2 is every salary that is paid out in the United States currently needs to file a W-2 tax. And that's usually your employer. That's for the IRS. And that is reporting of wages. So that is what the IRS uses to determine your taxable income from your salary, your earned income. It's the highest tax form of income, uh, but that's something, you know, for those of you who weren't aware of, you've probably seen it. Uh, I just wanted to find that. We've also got the term inflation, which is the general increase in the price of goods and services. And that's a natural phenomenon and in, in I'd say a healthy economy. Now, we're not going to go too much into economics or how we feel about, you know, the, the numbers. We're just going to share them how they are and what they mean. How you feel about them, that's up to you. And we're not going to be debating too much about how, you know, what's good, what's bad. It is what it is. Um, but inflation is a general increase in, in the price of goods and services. And what that has a direct impact to you on a microeconomic, right, micro as in you, small, local, is your dollar that you're getting from your employer does not go as far. Every day it gets inflated. So inflation just means that that dollar, you have to have more dollars to pay for the same good or service. Um, pack of gum, 50 cents is now 75 cents. Um, so another good indicator that indicates inflation at a national level is the consumer price index. Now, there's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of pros, cons about it. The reason why we're going to talk about it is because it's something that's pretty mainstream. You're going to hear it a lot in the news. It's something that is a buzzword, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, inflation. It's an indicator, right? It's a performance indicator of how inflation is happening for the consumer. And so basically it's, you know, how much money does it cost to take someone out on a dinner, have a movie, right, pay for the movie, and have a romantic getaway to the hospital? Ha ha. Um, no, in reality, it's just a bundle of goods like housing, clothing, healthcare, food, electricity that are wrapped into a figure that determines the price of those goods today at a certain time stamp. And the changes in that value are directly reflective of the inflation. So that's how you kind of gauge, oh, wow, things are getting expensive. And a lot of us, we just feel that. Right? We're like, wow, my dollar's not getting stretched as far. Like we really, we are budgeting, we are really locking down and, you know, putting, you know, tucking our shirts in with, with our spending. And yet we still are not 
feeling comfortable, right? We're not eating out as much, right? We're not, what's going on? Inflation may be, may be the suspect here, may be a good offender. Um, so, so moving on from the consumer price index, that's more of a, a macroeconomic. So it, it is an indicator of how you're going to feel, but it's national, right? So it's like, great, a guy in New Jersey, Detroit, or someone in freaking Manhattan, New York, or Boulder, Colorado, right? CPI is great for the national average, but it's not going to tell you how you're going to feel at Fred's Diner down the street. If you go to the Regal Movie Theater, right, downtown, or you go to the St. Benedict's Hospital, right, that's on the other side of town. That direct local effect is captured in the cost of living. And so there's indices, right, a lot of people, there's a lot of organizations, uh, nonprofits and, and uh, government agencies that will actually produce these indices and publish them. The problem is these numbers, they have bias, right? There's some things that are taken into account, certain things that are not. We're not going to go too much into the details on that. This is just something to know, right? You have to kind of question the numbers constantly. Um, but these are indicators, and the trends in these indices are, are what's more important than the numbers, actual numbers themselves. Cost of living. Cost of living is an indicator that you can use to determine, hey, maybe I should move, right? I, I'm buying a burger here at Fred's Diner and it's just doubled in price in the last six months. <sighs> My wages are stagnant. You know, I don't really have room for growth here. Maybe I should look for another job. Okay, well, what cities can I get the lowest cost of living, right? And maintain a decent wage. And that is also going to play into your what's called discretionary spending, another buzzword, which is basically how much money do you have left over after your paycheck? After everything essential is paid. Now, again, essential, a lot of people define it differently, but primarily it's all the necessities, right? Housing, healthcare, food, clothing, electricity, things that you need to operate. I would even put your phone service and internet in there at this point because we all depend on that and your taxes. After all that's paid, do you have anything left over? And if you do, how much? Because uh, that's going to impact you know, how much you can save, how much you can invest you know, how much you can really wow your date. So all these things come into, and we'll share with you, there's actually a family budget calculator uh, that is fairly nice. They got a nice little user interface there. Um, and the EPI, Economic Policy Institute, which is a nonprofit, you may have a slight bias towards labor unions, but they publish a calculator here that's fairly consistent. And I actually tested it with Brad and I. I put Boulder versus Tampa. Um, Boulder, Colorado, Tampa, Florida. And I put in two adults with one child. I got to compare apples to apples at least if I'm going to compare Boulder to Tampa. Um, but a, a small family of two kid, two adults and one child, I and Brad, you can pull this up too afterwards. We can take a look at it. But in the family budget calculator, I noticed there's a 30% bump from going from Tampa, Florida to Boulder in cost of living. So your salary better bump at least by 30% or you're going to feel it. You're going to have a hard time, right? You're going to, your quality of life, the things that you like to do, the things that you, your lifestyle are going to be impacted by that shift. And so if you don't look at the cost of living of where you're at, you could think that a salary of a hundred grand is really good. But if you're in downtown Manhattan, I wouldn't say you're broke, but you're broke. <laughs> you're broke. Whereas Tampa, I mean, you can buy a nice villa. I mean, you can probably buy a couple houses, right? You can have um, housekeeping. I mean, you, 
it, if you're in Bangladesh, I mean, if we start getting to these large, huge gaps um, in cost of living, you can start seeing why cost of living is a number you're going to keep track of, depending on where you are locally. And again, it is a track of, it is an indicator of inflation, but it's very local. So you can compare. It's designed to compare between different locations, right? Um, to make an informed decision about where you can feel freer, right? Feel more and control your finances, have more or less discretionary spending, which is ultimately what you're after as an investor and as someone who's trying to get out of this wage dependency. And we'll go more into why there is a dependency on your salary. And a lot of it has to do with minimizing your discretionary spending. Um, so Brad, you had a couple items here. I'm literally linearly going down the list. So did you want to chime in on that? Yeah, no, I think that was good, Nick. Um, I, I did want to mention one thing in the context of, you know, you mentioned the consumer price index as an indicator of inflation and, and cost of living and those things. And, and as we get deeper into the discussion surrounding salary, right, your W-2, um, you know, the, the general source of income that, that most people have, right, from, from general employment. Um, but in the context of those things, you, you know, you have to look at um, what have wages done over time. Right. So we'll get more into, um, you know, the salary dependence and, and your goals and everything. If you look at the chart over time, right, for wages, um, you know, there has been modest wage growth over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, but in the context of those things you mentioned, Nick, right, the consumer price index, right? So inflation, cost of living in different places, um, wages haven't really done anything. They haven't really gone up um, in the context of those things. Right. So um, you know, what does that mean, right? We'll talk more about that as we go along, but, um, you know, in, in, in short, uh, what it means is you have less dis discretionary spending or discretionary income, income, as you mentioned earlier, to, to spend on those things, right? To, to going to the movies or, um, you know, just general things that you would spend money on, um, that your family would spend money on, there's less of it, right? And so, and so that's been a big issue, um, you know, across the country is, that stagnant wage growth in the context of higher costs of living and, and the you know, inflationary uh, pressure um, it, you know, in the broader economy. Absolutely. And Brad, that's, I mean, that's exactly what, actually, I think it might make sense too to define a couple, the last two terms here we've got for the episode, um, cash flow. And so you know, there, there's financial statements that will go into depth in an episode. Uh, and I'd like to, just really make it very simple to understand the three basic. I think there's only two financial statements that are critical to an individual in a personal family household. Um, the third one, sure, you, you know, the profit and loss, but we're going to focus heavily on why does understanding a financial statement matter to you, even though it's personal finance, thinking about your business, sorry, <laughs> thinking about your life as a business helps you be more disciplined in where money is going and how you're using that. And even though your goal, maybe not to increase your profits, right? That's not, you're not a, a bit a for-profit business. You are a for enjoyment, for quality of life, for happiness enterprise as an individual and as someone who's going to have a family and grow. And, and so you're going to have to understand those things have costs and whether you're a business or you're an individual, personal finance, business finance, you're going to have these three financial statements living and governing your behavior with your finances. So we're going to go a little bit into what a cash flow statement is. Uh, 
But right now, what you need to know is that's how value moves in or out of your control over time. So that's fairly vague. Um, and I, I called it value flow because we say cash flow, but you know, cash is a measure of value, right? And so technically money wouldn't have to move. You know, if I give you some clothes, if I give you my car, right? You buy the car from me um, or I buy a car from you. Well, yeah, I gave you cash. I lost cash, but now I got a car, right? And there's intrinsic value. There was a flow of value there in that exchange. So that's why I like to focus on that. Um, but cash flow is going to be a financial statement we're going to look at. And then the position, the financial position is going to be another statement. So it's just another perspective on looking on the same thing, which is your finances. So your finances aren't changing. We're just looking at different lenses, right? Cash flow, cash flow. Hmm, that's a good one. Cash flow is a how money moves through time versus position is a snapshot of your accumulated value. So if any moment you could take a snapshot and look at your bank accounts, for example, you could say, oh, all right, this is what my net worth is at this second. Okay, great. Some, an expense just went out. My net worth went down, <laughs> right? So my position or net worth is constantly being affected by my cash flows. Okay. And there's another statement I don't want to even mention right now to confuse anyone. Okay. But cash flow and position are the two financial statements that most you need to keep your eye on. Right. And budgeting is part of that cash flow. Cash flow control comes from budgeting. And we spoke about time budgeting. There's just like time budgeting, cash flow needs to be controlled by a uh, financial budget. So you're just allocating with the finite cash flow that you have what should go to what expenditure, what should go to what investments, savings, etc. And all those decisions you make, either because you have to or you can't, you know out of free will, they affect your position. And so that's where you're going to start to see there's, there's relationships between these statements, these outlooks, these angles on your financials. And at the end of the day, your position growing, so your value or wealth, net worth, right, is the term, growing is what indicates relatively a healthy progress. Progress. It indicates progress. It means that you're spending less globally than you are bringing in, okay? And that doesn't have to be cash. If you buy a piece of real estate and you got a lot of debt on it, and oh my goodness, it costs a lot to pay for that mortgage, but if you look at the property and how to cruise in value, well, your position might be very high. You just bought a giant piece of property with financing. So you didn't put a lot of cash down. You got a big mortgage, but now you got this giant asset, right? This giant Asset, and I'll define asset. Asset is just having something of intrinsic value that has the ability to appreciate and cash flow. I know that's very loaded. I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback from people who you know study assets and liabilities for a living. But in my experience, that all that matters for personal finance is that an asset is something that has value, has the ability to increase in value, and to produce income for you. That's an asset. Um, so I added a few terms there, Brad, just because I realized as I was discussing this and using other terms to define this, I had to define those, you know? And so I think we kind of get in this spiral a little bit and that's part of the value I think here is demystifying some of these terms before we use them so that, you know, those of you listening can at least have a place to start. And I highly recommend all these terms are very well defined in investopedia.com. I highly recommend you subscribe to their newsletter. They send nice little uh, daily digests 
uh, it's free and I, I highly recommend just getting lost in there. Um, and, and then when you're sufficiently have headaches, come listen to us to get a little more clarity. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, all right. So, um, to, to back to Brad's point about the wages disparity, the wages being stagnant, right? And cost of living going up, right? The inflation rates are continuously growing. And I, I looked quickly at your graph, but you know, we'll, we'll share that in a follow-up blog post. But basically the graph shows for the listeners that cost of living is growing much faster than what wages are growing. What that means is at some point, which is now it looks like in your graph, now your wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. And so even if you went to your employer and you negotiated a raise, one, your employer may not be able to provide that raise. Okay, business is not good in general. Economy is stagnant. And so there'd be reasons not to get a promotion, not to get that salary bump. Maybe you get a promotion, but no salary bump. I highly recommend, discourage that, by the way, in general, unless it's a short-term um, strategy. It's just a way to work more for less uh, if you get a promotion with no salary. So, but what does that mean? I get that bigger salary. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I'm taught to get to the next rung, right? In that corporate ladder. Why is that a bad thing, right? Stability, security, long-term growth potential. Like I got my 401k, my employer matches that. Why am I saying that if you try to get that salary, bump and you negotiate that and you're on your performance metrics, right? You're on your track to hit those benchmarks that are set for you by your management. Why are you saying that that doesn't matter? Why is, I'm going to tell you today, given the economy, even if you do push, the rate of inflation is pushing just as hard. So imagine you hit your brother and then your brother hits you back the exact same equal force, right? Every action has equal opposite reaction. Well, in finance, that's always a good thing. And right now it's not. When inflation is punching back just as hard as your efforts to get ahead by getting that promotion, getting that salary bump, you literally are not getting ahead. You're just preventing yourself from falling behind. And so when you look at it that way, you did a lot of work just to not get behind. And you don't have job security, right? There's been a lot of layoffs recently. And I don't want to get too time specific, but in general, you, we need to find ways to seek additional sources of income. And a lot of our podcasts, we are going to discuss these different types and sources and origins of income that you can produce for yourself and your, for your family. Some are easier than others to generate. But I would encourage you, and this is a mistake that I've made personally, uh, to pursue sources of income that you believe in fundamentally. So the income you are going to produce from all these different sources of income that you're going to explore, right? As you embark on your personal finance journey, there will be many of which don't make sense to you. Many of which don't jibe with your values. There will be some that get you excited. There will be some that at night you forget that those sources of income are actually why you got into that asset class or that investment in the first place. You'll forget about the money. And I think that is the key to providing a stable alternative source of income that energizes you, doesn't beat you down to apathy where you're waking up at Saturday, 5 a.m. and you're 
regretting that you started this second source of income. No, you are waking up at 5 a, at 4.30 a.m. brewing a pot of coffee to kick ass. And you forgot that you did it for the money, but now it's producing enough income that you're accomplishing your goal while also developing yourself personally. And I think it's very important that you marry your source of income with your value system. And we spoke about that in the time management episode but Brad, you know, I, I think you just got off reading a fantastic book. It sounds like the four hour work week. You know, there's some takeaways in there specifically with regards to generating additional sources of income. So I, if you want to comment on that and kind of the things that stick, you know, top of mind of the, that book kind of the cliff notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely a great book. Um, highly recommend for anyone who's looking to, um, you know, generate some, some actual tangible ideas for producing additional sources of income. Um, I read a number of books, uh, you know, surrounding this topic, but not a, not a, a lot of books out there um, offer you very specifics in terms of ad, how to actually cultivate, you know, additional streams of income, right? And so the, the author walks you through um, specific examples um, you know, end to end, right? So from the, from the, you know, the inception of an idea, how you carry it out, um, you know, what that looks like, the mechanics of it. Um, so it was really valuable from that standpoint. Um, Sorry, you know, Brad, the, just, the, just to interrupt for a second, four hour work week. Is that just the premise? Cause it's sticking in my mind. It might be a question listeners have four hour. Does that just mean, what does that mean? Is he pitching, Hey, here are income sources that I'm going to show you how to produce that make you able to just spend four hours of your week working? It's like, what does that mean? Four hour work week, I guess. Yeah. It, no, you're right. It's, it's hard work, to believe, you know, yeah, cause no, I, I spend it, yeah. 40 hours a week. Right. Yeah. And I, I barely get by. So you're telling me four hours, I can produce enough income that the other 36 of my hours would have needed to produce like, yeah, it's, it's worth exploring this further. I'm glad you brought up, you know, the title, right? It's so like, let's, let's bring it back home. Right. So you know, why, why are, first, why are we seeking additional sources of income? You, you know, you've been mentioning it th this whole time, right? With, you know, inflation and, you know, I mentioned stagnant wage, wage growth, um, four hour work week, uh, you know, and, and it's funny how he sort of came up with the title, but um, yeah, it, it's basically just that, you know, how many hours per week can I effectively work and live and, and live sufficiently? Right. So how, how he's, he's constantly exploring ways of reducing output time, right? Like how, how much time it takes him to cultivate X dollars, right? And so we're, we are used, we being the broader, you know, economy, you and I, people, you know, who have, you know, nine to five type jobs, um, you know, we're used to this 40 hour work week concept, right? It's been or around for, for decades or more, correct, or <laughs> more. Um, you know, and you look at some of the, the higher paying jobs, you know, attorneys and, and doctors and everything, you, you sort of have to break that down into a per hour cost, right? So, you know, things start to, to come into focus. Maybe someone's actually not making that much money per, you know, unit of time output, right? But, you know, I won't get into the weeds too much on that. But the concept here is how do, how does one, you know, leverage themselves out of, you know, working these excessive hours for a given salary, right? And so, you know, hard work is important, right? Hard work is, is very important, but so is working smart, Right. And so ways of developing income sources, income streams that will produce money, maybe perhaps even when you're sleeping. 
right? Maybe you, you did, you, you wrote an ebook or, you know, you have an online business, e-commerce, whatever it may be. There's so, there, there are, you know, limitless, um, you know, opportunities here in terms of how you can cultivate new sources of income. But Absolutely. the general concept is the four hour work week, right? It could be six, it could be two, you know, it doesn't mean you have, it has to be four, right? It's whatever works for you. But the concept is how do you get to a point where I don't have to be somewhere physically 40 hours plus per week? How do I get to that? How do I get to that ideal, um, you know, situation, right? Maybe you want to spend more time with your family. Uh, I mean, I think we probably all want to do that, right? Maybe it's traveling, you know, what, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and it's going to be different, right? Everyone's going to have a different concept of what the I quote unquote ideal life is. Or maybe too, it's investing yourself in a charity. Right? Exactly. It's, Maybe, it's yeah. losing yourself in a cause that you believe in exactly. and not waking up one day saying, shit, I'm getting evicted because I couldn't pay my rent. But landlord, I make a difference. Yeah. Don't. I've gotten close to that in the past. It's a reality that if you don't think about your personal finances, what will happen is it will come after you. It will haunt you. It's not something you can ignore. You know, it's like your health your actual physical health, if you neglect going out, moving, walking, doing things to keep your body in a general shape, maintenance, it will, you will pay for it. There's no ignoring it. You can't just, oh yeah, I'll work out one day. No, my blood pressure is up. Now I'm on medication. I got a lot of lower back pain. These are things that will come to find you when you least expect it. If you are not proactive, same with your finances. It's exactly the same. And so what Brad's mentioning here. I am slightly skeptical, you know, I do, there's some income streams, you know, that I've tried to produce and I fail pretty miserably. And I think for those out in the audience who have tried, right. And then they, they, they kind of threw in the towel, so to speak. And they said, you know what? I, I give up. I'm not giving up and I almost lost everything. I almost lost everything I had built from scratch. I almost lost it all in a very rapid short period of time. And why do I not stop believing? And the reason why I don't stop believing, part of it is faith, but also I'm seeing it. I'm actively seeking others who have made it, who are on the path that I believe in, but it's hard to be on, on your own. And so, you know, reading books is, is the, that's the gateway into becoming part of this community of individuals that are all seeking financial independence. What is financial independence? Financial independence is Bradley touched on the ability to decide what you do with your time. That's what it actually is. But until you have financial independence, your time is controlled by, right? Your main source of income, your employer, right? There's timesheets, right? Clocking in, clocking out. There's expectations. Hopefully you don't work too many weekends, but there can be an ask more, more often than not from an employer to, hey, we really got to get this done. And if you got to, you know, get the hint, it's, hey, you know, we really need this done by the end of the quarter. I don't care how you get it done, but the company needs this done. What happens is now that really nice vacation, that nice outing, whatever you were planning to do is now impregnated with guilt, right? What you were planning on doing for yourself, you now have guilt because your day job is asking more of your time. And so I joke with Brad recently, I don't have enough time for my day job. <laughs> and <laughs> <You did. laughs> I, I said that and in all 
truth, that is how I feel right now. I mean, we're trying to provide this content for listeners right now. We're trying to unearth the truths, right, in an investigative style so that others can be empowered to make decisions for themselves because we don't want to be alone. We want those of you listening, some of you are going to start your own podcast. Some of you are going to start your own businesses. Some of you are going to start your own families. We all need to get together. We need to stick together in our journey towards financial independence, which is the goal. Today, you cannot retire as your parents did or your grandparents. Today, the world looks very different than it did when your parents were working and they had a pension plan maybe for a large utility company and work for 40 years. That does not exist anymore. And if you think it does, I encourage you to read. Read books, read periodicals, right? We got the Bestopedia for our work week. I think we should start a book list, by the way, Brad, just for listeners. Absolutely. Um, so that when they come in, you know, they've already got, okay, yeah, I've read this book or zero to one or whatever entrepreneurship book. Because um, there's a lot of books out there. And a lot of people share a lot of information and kind of providing signal from the noise with our book list is probably a healthy thing. So we'll put that down as action item. But something that stuck out, you know, I, okay, let's say I'm willing to acknowledge it can be done before our work week today. What types of income sources was, what, who's the author, by the way? Uh, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. I think you mentioned something. I just want to hear it here on the recorded, on the recording. What types of sources of income were coming up? Because I remember you mentioned, and this is something we had a conversation we should have recorded on, but you didn't value or you, you, your value system was a little bit not in parallel, was not aligned with some of the income stream ideas. Could you kind of, is that, can you clarify that for me? I don't even know if that's true or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we had talked about it briefly um, and it's, it's, you know, absolutely worth, you know, expanding upon here, but um, it's also very, very important to keep this whole, you know, when we talk about new sources of income, um, it has to overlay, it has to overlap rather with your, with your values, right? And so not all business ideas, not all ventures, not all income streams are going to line up with something that you feel is, um, you know, right, or, or something that you feel comfortable doing or, or you want to do, right? And so it's not to say, you know, some of them are inherently bad. I mean, you know, I guess, well, yeah, some of them are inherently bad, um, but it depends primarily on what your value, what, what your value set is, right? And so for me, I want to create value for, for the end user, for the end consumer, whatever it may be. So if it's, you know, us producing a podcast that we think is valuable, if it's us blogging, um, if it's us writing an ebook, or if it's us, you know, d doing something that creates value for somebody, right? It's, it feels a little dirty at times if you're trying to cultivate income from something that you don't necessarily feels value or you feel like for the sake of value, income, for the sake of income. Right. And I'll right. use for an example, um, reselling things, right. It, it's not an inherently bad thing, right. Maybe you bought a car and sold it for more than it's worth. Like that's not inherently unethical, right. That that's okay. That that's part of commerce. Right. But if you're doing it at scale, um, you know, again, not inherently bad. It's just, if your value, if your values are create value for somebody else, right? It, it seems like there's a, a, a little bit of a misalignment there. If all I'm doing is taking some, something from one 
place, right? And they call it arbitrage in different, you know, fancy terms. But let's say I'm buying clothes, you know, the Goodwills are, you know, putting out a bunch of clothes that people have donated. I'm buying those clothes from Goodwill and I'm reselling them in a different marketplace for more than I purchased them for. Like, the, okay, that's all well and good. And, and there are people that do this. That's why I'm specifically mentioning it. Um, but what value am I really bringing to society? I'm, I'm generating potentially a lot of income, but for what though? For what, what purpose? Is it, does it benefit society? Is there a value for some consumer? Um, right. And so I, I just want to you know, mention that, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's worth exploring. Um, you know, go, always go back to your values, wh- whatever you're doing in life, but particularly when it comes to generating new sources of income, what is, what is my value set? What is my family's value set? What do we stand for? Who are we? Right. And so, you know, we've talked about it briefly, but we we're we're doing a podcast because we want to create value for people. Right. That's why we're doing it. Um, Right. And and so we have that context. And I think it's important for everyone to know what their context is when it comes to developing, uh, you know, new income streams or or how you spend your time in general. Right. It's a broader you know question um, that that is, you know, you have to explore. Um, Right. So I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, Brad, I think it's a good segue now on that topic to discuss, you know, those, those graphs that are put together. Um, and I just, I want to preface this next little segment here. We, we built the context, right? We provide the context. Why are we talking about this? You know, your job is not going to get you out, out into retirement, right? The current tra- trajectory for most, right? For most middle-class is working and until death, essentially, unless a windfall, right, of inheritance uh, comes in, you win the lottery, uh, or you sell all your stock options, you liquidate your portfolio, it, 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 they're, they're getting smaller and, and fewer, your options for retirement. And so, you know, if I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to work forever, I want to have more time to myself, you got to start thinking, where is your money being spent now? Where is it? Where is it live? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it producing value in the way that align with your values? And so I'd like to just discuss these few, basically their balance sheets through the position statements I was describing earlier. I literally just qualitatively, I made up some numbers that are not even my numbers. Okay. Disclaimer there on the back of a, or on the front of a Hilton notepad, literally just coming out of my head, thinking about what are the biggest expenses and the biggest assets, liabilities, right? The biggest thing that impact our financial health, right? Most of us have a car, for example. That car, right, has an inherent value, a cash value, right? So even if your car's worth five grand, you don't have the five grand, you have an asset worth that, but until you sell it, right, you don't have that cash. And so that's a really bad car, my gosh, that I drew, but I think we're gonna share this just because I, I really want and just like Brad said, it's funny. It's it's resonating with me. Reducing the middleman, right? Because yeah, maybe I I uh, sell cars at scale, right? For for large markup, and I make money off of just buying a car for a low price, sell for high. I don't like that, but I do like the income and profit I produce that can then pay for my charity. Okay, that's one way to do it, and I've seen that done successfully, right? You're ethical as you can be, but you don't believe in the source of income. You're not, it's not something that gets you excited. And then 
you parlay that, right? You leverage that value that you've created or you've captured, I'd more accurately said, you capture that value in that exchange and now you've put it towards something you actually do believe in. Now, that's one way to go. But I think providing the value straight to the consumer, the end consumer of the content you're producing, that's where I want to be. And why do I want to be there? Because there's a infinite, there's an infinite source, right, of insight and desire to help. And that's why I put this on a notepad <laughs> and it's raw and your guys are going to see it like this because you know, I could spend more time putting in an Excel spreadsheet, all this and do some fancy, but look, this is out of Nick's brain onto pen and paper. And I think this is value raw, but I want to provide that to you guys so that you can see how do I think, how do I draw circles? How do I draw really bad cars? I don't draw cars. I don't know cars actually, um, Brad. And so why, how do I think about this so it can help you think about how do your finances get in the way of your financial independence? So specifically this car, how does this impact your personal finance? How does it help or hurt? Help or hurt? And I invite you guys to look at it, pause here, take a look at that really bad drawing. <laughs> and if you still want to listen to the podcast, press play. Now that you're back, I'd like for you to let me know, is it help or hurt? And I'm going to say hurt uh, because I'm looking at the net here being negative 15K. Okay, well, that's the balance sheet. Um, why is that negative? Well, if you look at the graph, and I did a little screenshot, right? Time is the x-axis. This is the horizontal line there. That's time. And it gets bigger as you go to the right. The left axis is, is money, value. I put asset over liability, but just to explain the value, right? The cash value. And so... That graph, if you see the, the early part where you bought it back in 2019, it was, it was pretty valuable, right? You have a $30,000 car, maybe, right? Put a price tag on it. And then very quickly, I drove it off the lot. And I'm like, dang, I just lost five, five grand. Like, where'd the five grand go? Did it come out of my tailpipe? Like, Brad, can you help me? Like, did, I, did five grand fall out of my car? Did I open the back door or the trunk and it just five grand flew out? No, that's that's... That's how the asset is valued in our market, in our economy. It's not valued very much when it comes off the dealership. Once it's lost that shine and it's touched, the rubber has touched that asphalt that's not the dealer parking lot, you are losing five grand, right? You're, or, or more or less, but you're, it's going to drop. And so you see that curve, right? And you just drop a, a lot of value from a new vehicle and you took a loan out potentially. That's what that straight line is that's going down and it should be going down right because you're paying it down so the value of your loan which is not good for you right it's a loan it's money you owe you want that value to go down with time and so the loan you got to buy that car versus the value of that car right you can see the gap there so i drew a vertical line just like a snapshot now right now right um so we're in 2020 right we are november Right now, I have a loan balance, right? Maybe 15, 20 grand. When I bought the car, it was worth like 25. But my loan balance is 15. The intrinsic value of the car is 12 or 10. So now I owe more money. And I'm making numbers up, guys, but this is, this is an accurate picture, okay? Uh, the, there's no numbers. But there is going to be a time, and right now is probably that time, where the loan is 
forever going to be worth more than the car that it's for. So I'm paying every month, and you're paying every month, most likely if you have a finance car, a monthly payment on a brand new vehicle that is no longer valuable. It's not as valuable as the debt you're paying for that car. And I'm never going to buy a new car. I just did it because I'd never done it, to be honest. I always bought used cars and never had a lot of trouble with it, that process of buying used cars. But now that I see the cost and how this affects my balance sheet, I'm going to think twice when we buy a new car. I'm probably going to call Brad. I'll say, hey, Brad, I'll, I want to buy a car, but you know me, cash or no buy. And so I got to buy a cheaper car, right? Because financing a car, as you can see in this really bad picture, it's very illustrative of how it's going to negatively impact your net worth, your financial position. Okay. Not to mention the cash flow. I didn't really show the cash flow here, but you're paying that monthly premium, right? You're, that monthly debt service for that car. And then when you eventually sell the car, well, guess what? You might even have to cough up more cash to pay off that loan. So don't ever sell it at this point. Just hold on to it and take this as tuition, right? This is your tuition. That gap between the loan balance and right, your value of your car, it's bitter. It's tough to bear that, but chew on it. Take that as your MBA, right? Take that as your finance 101 class, okay? Now moving on, house, okay? I did the same thing for a house, okay? You have a house, a property, okay? Duplex, whatever. Um, it could be a mobile home, right? It's just where do you live? Now you got your assets liabilities here. I just literally made things up here. And some of these numbers are ballpark for like a Denver metro area, but um, it depends, right, on your location. So don't look at these numbers as end all be all. But generally, you're going to see a plus. And so if you do the pause and play, I just gave the answer, but if you do pause and then pick back up here after looking at this very amateur drawing here, this, you know, I'm not. Picasso, but you're going to see a net 50K increase from what I drew, right? Now, this is me making numbers up, right? So it's easy when you make up numbers to have nice numbers, right? And, but I venture you, I encourage you guys to go look at mortgage rates today, to look at taxes, insurance, and, and look at the cost of acquiring assets and see how those assets have appreciated, specifically in real estate. So look at your area where you live right now. Actually, pause the episode and go to trulia.com. Start looking at trends, market trends, and look at the value. You know, Google like appreciation of, uh, and maybe I can show you guys a Trulia heat map. Uh, that would be good. Can we add that to the takeaway? Absolutely. On that, for the house, if you're going to Trulia, you go to the heat map and you look at the economic, the market trends for that asset class, which is real estate, right? and you look at single family, right, homes, you're going to see most likely in your area a general appreciation, an increase in the value of that house since last year and projected increase again, right? And yes, 2008 was bad, right? Values crashed, plummeted. Houses were worth pennies for the dollars that were paid for them. But that was a crash, in general, when things are mediocre to pretty good, and obviously booming is even better, but in general, mediocre economies, real estate appreciates in value, in general. Okay? 
And I'm not going to say how much. It depends where you're at, right? Just like that cost of living indicator is local to you and your inflation, same thing. There's local appreciation for where you live. So you're paying rent somewhere, you're paying a mortgage somewhere. Look, what's the value of your home? Go to Trulia.com. They have fairly accurate, I'd say. Disclaimer, I'm not an attorney or real estate agent. I just research. They have fairly consistent property values with what I would you know, estimate doing a little bit of homework and kind of looking at other homes that have sold in the area that are comparable to what I'm looking at to see, hey, are these numbers real? Or are they just kind of made up like I just did on this notepad? Um, so always verify your numbers. But the graph I showed is in general the behavior of that asset, right? On your financial position. So if you own this house, what does it look like for you? Well, maybe you bought it and you didn't get it at a discount, or maybe you did, right? Maybe you just paid for the property what it's worth. And actually, I did a little exercise. You could pay for property and pay more for a house than it's actually worth the day you buy it. But with time, that will go away. That gap, right? Oh, I overpaid for this. Well, guess what? Every single day, when you drive that house off the dealership parking lot, I did that on purpose. When you exit the title office, right? You close, you sign the paperwork, you sign something, you literally are buying into growth. Whereas when you bought a car, you're signing into decay. And that that's just the nature of the asset and the value in the economy and the market, right? Real estate generally appreciates cars, vehicles depreciate very quickly. And that's not great, right? You can do things with taxes and stuff, but it's not good when you have an asset that depreciates. That's not a good thing for you uh, and, and your personal finances. So what's really nice is if you had already paid, if you paid overpriced for a piece of property and it's growing, right? You walk out, you got the keys. Oh my gosh, I walk in, I open the door. I already made three grand. I made three grand opening the front door after I signed last. In an hour, I made three grand, right? Maybe not that quick. I appreciate it's not that fast. Okay, disclaimer. But maybe you made a few cents. Now, when you go to sleep in that house, you wake up, you're a little bit richer. Because the house that you're sleeping in, right, the floor atop which your bed is resting is increasing in value. Whether you are working, whether you're on vacation, whether you're sleeping, whether you're cooking, having a nice family get together, you are making money on your financial position statement because you bought an appreciating asset. Okay. So we won't talk about cash flow on this, but um, generally uh, you're going to have to pay for the house, right? You don't, you got to pay uh, the house and you get a mortgage typically, right? And you can sign and see just like the car, there's a spread between the price of the asset, which is the home and the loan, right? The debt you got to buy it. Most people don't have 100 grand or 200 grand floating around or 300, you know, just buy a piece of property. You usually need leverage. And I recommend getting financing, even if it's a little bit, just to get your financing muscles flexing. Even if you could pay something cash for an asset that appreciates, okay? I'm not talking about asset that depreciates like a car, but a house that does appreciate faster than the debt value. I recommend getting into debt, see, because that is good debt, right? And I will refine my definition of uh, bad debt in a de another episode. That's too much overhead right now. 
you know, too much cognitive load, too much thinking. But right now, when you look at this little diagram, you see there's a, there's a, there's a space between the price of your house and the loan balance. And that space grows with time in your favor. Something's worth more and you owe less on it. That's you. That's all you. That's in your name. So if you decide to sell in the future, that gap is your pocket. It will show up in your bank account, right? So moving on, um, the final one I wanted to show was the juxtaposition between, you know, you just looking at you and your financial output, what you can produce as a W-2 salary earner, um, as a self-employed, right? Maybe you have paintings, right? You open up a small business uh, that, that you run and it's a full-time gig, what, what have you, whatever it is, these smaller, um, let's say, very earned and active forms of income that you, if you're not involved with, you know, you don't have that income. So very active, right? You have to be around. You can't sleep and make money. You got to be awake to make money. I would call that active. And so that's what this is, is what is your life look like? And if you can see in my little drawing, another Hilton notepad, the liabilities here are pretty high. Liabilities, oh, I didn't define liabilities earlier. A liability is something you owe, right? It's, it's something, it's an obligation, right? It's a promise to pay something. So food for the month, well, you, you're expecting to have to pay some amount. I put a lot of money there. I don't know why it's so high. That's a lot. Uh, maybe I'm feeding a village, but if I'm feeding a village, that's what I promise to pay. So I have to come up with that money to pay for that somehow from my assets, right? My W2 salary, they promised me to pay me whatever that is. I put 80K randomly here, but that asset, which is my promise to get income has to pay that promise for the expense of food, right? So that's how I characterize this to kind of show a snapshot of where things every, where everything stand. And you can see I got a lot of liabilities and well, I got Christmas, you know, I got, I got presents for the whole family. You know, I'm St. Nick, I got to provide Christmas gifts. Oh, I got to go on vacation. My goodness. I got to go, you know, the cruise line. Oh, I, you know, uncle Bob can't afford it. So I got to pay for his ticket, you know, or I'm going to have a lot of guilt tripping on Thanksgiving. So that look at how that adds up. My goodness. You know, I get a little anxious when I see this. Medical, right? You got that unexpected medical bill that wasn't covered by your great insurance plan. Yeah, I put that in here too. So what do I see here? Well, I've painted an optimistic picture. You can pause and play. But the net 20K here, to be honest, I th it's usually not that big. It's usually smaller in general. And I'll just explain by the graph. Look at the graph. Pictures are easier here. To describe, but that dotted line, which so far in the other diagrams was loans, right? It was debt. Well, that's the cost of living going up, right? It's the inflation is making that go up. So now the cost of just living your life how you've always lived it gets more expensive. So that diner, that coffee shop you love to go to every morning next year will not be the same price for that latte, it will be more. And so what happens is that solid line that you kind of looks like steps there. I'm showing you what you're doing when you earn that promotion and get a salary bump. So that salary bump is reflected with that jump. That's the next step, right? And the corporate steps staircase. It historically is very close to the rise in inflation. 
So what does that mean for you? Well, it means you're always going to have 20K net, according to my diagram. You're always going to have creeping expenses with your creeping income. So you're never going to get ahead. Based off this diagram that I did that makes a lot of assumptions, but bringing this all together, tying this all into the whole topic of the show, if you cannot retire based off of your salary because of this diagram and what we're telling you, what do you do? What can I do, right? I'm working. I went to school. I got a degree in this thing that I'm really good at, and I get paid to do it. I get paid well. Yes, I have expenses, but I can cut back, but you can only cut back so much. Your liability, you can't, you got to eat. You got to pay insurance, right? Maybe you can stop going on vacation. Maybe you can, you know, just put some coal and people, you know, make some jokes about being cheap at Christmas. That'll go over well. But, you know, you can cut back, but you got to wear clothes, right? You got to get school supplies for the kids. You've got to pay for mom's medical bill that she's been struggling to pay for years. There are things that you're going to want to do that you're not going to be able to do even when you get that big promotion and salary. And yeah, you can get a nice signing bonus, but that's not recurring revenue. That's not a promise to continue to pay that cash flow. And so going back to the house, you saw how that value gap grows day, night, sleep, awake, vacation, retired, it grows. You need to stop thinking about W2 as your way to financial independence and to a secure, stable future for you and your family. And you need to start thinking, how do I produce value in the economy, the broader economy? Maybe you didn't get a degree in marketing. Maybe you didn't get a degree in public speaking or writing, right? Creative writing. But you can learn and you can produce value for people out there. And that's why I love the internet. You know, I'm a coder, Brad. You know that. And I, I love coding. And so I love coding things that can help people. And I did not get a degree in public speaking. I maybe took an elective and was class clown. But yeah, this, this is the mode in which I want to provide value. One of the modes. And I don't want to rely on this as my single source of income, right? So we are diversifying. Brad and I are always learning and actively adapting to the economy. And so it's very important that we register with you guys that a W-2 salary, there's nothing negative about it, but equipping you with the information and the reality of today's economy and where it has gone since our parents have exited the workforce or nearing retirement, the reality is you need to figure something else out, a side income, right? Maybe it's tutoring, right? Maybe it's doing a YouTube channel. Maybe it's doing an online bookstore, right? Good luck with Amazon. But again, you need to get creative and think about things that align with you and things that you're passionate about because that's the only way you're going to stick to it. 